Hello, and welcome to the Reach or Miss Show, the podcast for the customer-focused entrepreneur, where Hayut Yogev speaks with entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs about reaching or missing the critical point of approaching the right customer with the right message at the right time and place. The point where business success starts. And here is your host, Hayut Yogev. Rich or Miss, episode 166. Hey, my Richers, I'm thinking of you a lot. And I hope all of you are well and safe. I want to share with you what Riggs Ackleberry, my guest today, said as his best advice to entrepreneurs. My best advice to entrepreneurs is first, you've got to jump in the pool. Don't hesitate. Because this thing by itself will teach you so much. The second thing is that once you are in the pool, quickly find among those people in the pool already someone who offers to help and guide you. Take this help and use it to create your advantage over the competition. I think that I couldn't open this episode with a better advice. And I think many things are going to change now. And I'm not talking only about the coronavirus crisis. I think all of us will have to find the clear direction fast and jump in the water. Don't hesitate. I'm here for any one of you who might need any encouragement or help or advice. So, keep in touch. Chayut at richomiss.com Or join one of my Facebook groups, Entrepreneurial Marketing Success and Women Entrepreneurs Starting Out. I hope to hear from you directly. Let's start. Riggs Eckelberry doesn't look like a bomb thrower, and yet he is driving the distribution of a trillion-dollar industry that has fallen behind the times and is affecting the health of millions. That industry is big water. Simply, those billion-dollar centralized water systems aren't coping with demand, and water quality is getting worse. The answer? Instant infrastructure. Business are doing their own water treatment using modular prefabricated systems and are tracked right on site. They get better water quality, lower rates through cycling, and even improved environmental grudges. Ten years after launching public company Region Clear, Riggs and his team are offering those tracking place modular systems in the U.S., while licenses are building products internationally using Origin Clear's low-energy, chemical-free innovation. Riggs enjoys skiing and sailing and transforming the water industry to deal with the growing water challenges of our time. Riggs Eckleberry, what a pleasure to have you here. Hi. Hayut, it's a great pleasure being here on this Memorial Day in the United States. Yeah, it is the Memorial Day. I looked forward to hear your story, and I'm really curious to hear that. 
I just shared with our listeners what you've done until now, and I would like you to share with us what are you doing and most passionate about today, and where are you heading? Oh, that's very interesting because, you know, I, I've been working in something called the water industry, uh, meaning industrial water, not, yeah. uh, you know, not water filters at home and so forth. And the water industry is enormous. It's a trillion dollar industry worldwide. And yet, it's not doing its job. Only one-fifth of all of the sewage in the world is treated. And um, we look, of course, to Israel as a great example of doing it right. Mm. But most of the world is doing it very badly. And Chayut, the, the real problem is there's no change. It's, it's very slow to change. And we started looking for a solution. And interestingly enough, it was the new coronavirus that forced us to find this new solution. Oh. So the solution is so young? Well, let me put it this way. Um, I have a public company, Origin Clear, uh, and we've been going for 13 years now. Um, and we've been trying to exert change the normal way, which if you know any kind of public works, they take months, sometimes years to concretize. Sure. As a result, the growth is very, very slow. The water industry is actually falling behind global population growth. It is doing less relatively than the growth of population. And so we have a situation with water quality, water health, um, you know, 2.5 billion humans not having access to clean water. Wow. Um, issues like that are, are, are chronic. And so we were living in a chronic world and that became an acute problem with the new coronavirus. That's right. I remember people, I worked in water, not in filters, but in water purifiers. And I remember people talking about that for years, looking for solutions to make uh, water clean. And do you say that now you've got a solution? We think we do. So really, if you want to transform an industry, find the people who don't have access to it. For example, Uber allowed people who had their own cars to use them as taxis. Airbnb allowed people to use their own homes as hotels. And it opened up dramatically new markets. And by the way, did not kill the old markets. We still have hotels. We still have taxis. Not as many, but we still have those. But we have an enormously larger market. And you could argue that Uber and Airbnb, for example, transformed their sectors by allowing more people to play. And that's essentially what we've done here. Oh, how? What you've done? Actually, it's the first time, I think, that somebody is talking about the global industry. Mm. And you're talking about a global industry, like it's the problem that really uh, you are in charge of changing. So how come? Well... For example, if I were sitting in Israel right now, I'd be very happy with uh, nearly 90% recycling rates and very good water um, management, but I would be very short-sighted to not think about Bangladesh, which is putting dirty water in the same ocean that we have on the shores of Israel. So we really have to think globally about water because it affects all of us. So at the end of the day, people living in horrendous water conditions, for example, in India, they well, they are, you know, they're brothers and sisters and, sure. and they also affect our lives. So it's important to think of it as a global problem. Now, 
Yeah, of course, it's just much more complicated to take care of that. True. So how do you find a global solution? And, and I think that no one really thought about this until recently, where we were looking at how do we accelerate our company's effectiveness in the world? And we were accelerating locally. We were accelerating in places like Texas and, and uh, some activities in India and uh, Spain with the, the, the pig farming and so forth, but not, not making a big change in the world. And that became a major issue around the coronavirus because all of a sudden, conventional investors started having a problem. For example, yeah. stock market investors, real estate investors, all forms of conventional investing became completely thrown upside down. Right. And we could not continue to fund our operations. And we had to confront the fact that we were not really making a change in the world. This was in January. And at the time, we were just looking at China and saying, okay, this is going to be a domino. We actually did not expect it to be as bad as it has become, but we knew it was going to be a bad situation. So we solved the problem. And it's, you know, you made the thing about global versus local. You always must solve a global problem with a local solution that can scale up, right? Otherwise, right. you don't get any kind of solution. Well, the, the, the local solution we found was, okay, we have a very healthy investor base. We have over 10,000 shareholders, and they, they, they're very loyal. They love us and so forth. Why don't we let them invest in water projects directly as opposed to the company, right? Okay. And right away, we went, well, wait a minute. If they're going to invest in water projects, they can't fall into the problem of putting equipment in the ground and then that ground being subject to a foreclosure or expropriation or some kind of problem with the ownership of the land. Right. And so we had to say, okay, let's think about solutions that the investor continues to own and can take back if there's a problem. In this post-virus economy, we have three priorities for investors. One is yield. They must make a good percentage of their money. Yeah. Number two is liquidity. They have to be able to convert to cash pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And the third is safety, right? So the yield, liquidity, safety. So we had to find a way for people to invest safely in water projects. We later realized something, and that is that in most countries, probably, it's probably all over the world, but certainly in the United States, ordinary investors cannot invest directly in water projects and own them. They can buy bonds. They can invest in Veolia as a stock. They can't actually, there's going to be a housing development with 200 homes that's going to get its own closed circuit water treatment system. Mm -hmm. And I can invest in that. It doesn't exist. And so there was the audience, there was the group that didn't have access, but that wanted it. It was looking for yield, that was frustrated by trying to invest in the stock market and was, in the case of real estate investors, was having a terrible time. Mm -hmm. They were very interested in, oh, I can invest in something that is relatively safe and that returns very high yield and that can be converted to cash in some way and has tax advantage, et cetera. Wow. So all of a sudden, you know, when you have a solution, all of a sudden, all kinds of things started happening. Well, all of a sudden, 
instead of pushing the rock up a hill, we found the rock going downhill. <laughs> and that's what brought us to this new thing we call investor water. Investor water is a global marketplace that connects everyday investors to water projects. That's what it does. And of course, uh, like all marketplaces, you start by trying it yourself. Like let's do let's do the transactions ourselves. And so Investor Water currently um, is a lab project of Origin Clear, mm -hmm. but it's become my focus. And the reason is that we we see that it's happening very quickly. We chose three projects in different industries that we were going to apply this new structure to. So we we've been inviting investors to come in and take ownership of equipment that would then go out to users and then would generate uh, rental type returns and with all security and so forth. And these three cases are working very, very well. So as I speak to you, I know without a shadow of a doubt that investor water can be a viable marketplace like an Airbnb. Obviously, I'm not saying that we're going to be a $35 billion marketplace. I can't say that. I've been I have a public company, but what I can say is that um, we are investor water is to Airbnb what what, what water is to micro hotels, and I suggest to you that water is a much bigger marketplace than micro hotels. So for sure, I think I think we have something good here because if you if if we get past this first phase of these proofs of concept, these three projects that we could talk about, but it's not important. We're doing these. And then we, after that, we zoom out and we start creating a very simple marketplace. It's going to look very stupid. It's going to look like uh, eBay or something. Not very, not very fancy. It's not going to look like Airbnb. It's going to list water projects from various companies, including my own company. Yeah. And it's going to allow investors to go in and look and, and go, oh, I like this one. Send me the package, right? And then they invest. And we've built the financial models and we believe that investors can do very, very well with this investment type. So now we have the potential for a marketplace which can scale up because we're not the ones trying to do the water projects. We are hosting the water projects and the investors, providing a platform. And we're basically, how do you say we're being gentle? We're bringing people together, hmm. but we're not being the people. And that's critical. Things. Airbnb only scales because Airbnb is not trying to run any hotels. Hmm. Uh, Uber only scales because it has no taxis. It only hosts those activities. And as a result, it has that potential for adoption, especially in this online world. I've got a few questions for you. Please, please go ahead. First of all, the first question is, is there any industry that investors can directly invest in projects? Well, real estate is a very good one. Yeah, I thought of real estate, and yeah, that's right. And what we have in real estate is we have a very good marketplace called Zillow. Okay. Zillow is, I think, $65 billion company, and all they do is they host real estate transactions. That's what they do, right? So now, there's many industries that have not yet done it. I would argue that, for example, trucking needs a marketplace and all kinds of spaces generally B2B has not thought about marketplaces yet. It's just beginning. They've only B2C or C2C has been the trend so far. But there's no reason why not because it's, you know, marketplaces have been with us since, um, 
since prehistory, right? <laughs> right? It's a very, very common way. Um, you know, I remember years ago, I was in Taos, New Mexico, beautiful place, and we were taken for a tour through the forest, and we came upon a very large amphitheater. And the guide said, this is where the mountain men and the Indian would come together to trade with the furs and so forth. And so hmm. marketplaces are a natural evolution. And I would argue that we need a nexus hmm. like that for every single industry. And what's very powerful about it is you're not going to have 12 marketplaces per industry. You might have one, maybe two. So you, you have um, you know Uber and Lyft. But are you going to get a third one? Probably not. It's something that we see, and it's very interesting because we see it um, mainly in the virtual world. In the brick and mortar world or products world, you always saw at least two leaders, one leader and the second one, and then all the niche, and then the gorilla. And here, in today, in the virtual world, usually there is one player that leads the world. Take Google, take Facebook, take Airbnb. And it's very interesting to watch that because a lot of times you're the first to invent something and as the one that invented the idea, people are going with you. So you might be the only one. <laughs> first uh, to market momentum is very important. There's a book called Microsoft Secrets, I, because I came out of the software industry. And um, this reporter was invited to spend a year getting to know Microsoft and writing a book about it. And uh, they said, you have zero limitations. You can, anything you learn, you can share. And he said, how could that be? Hmm. He said, by the time the book is published, we will be four years ahead. Hmm. So let them find out about the old ancient history. Hmm. So we are already solving problems. For example, this weekend, I'm working with two different tax accountants on the tax specifics of these investing models. And so we're really getting in there. And you notice that Airbnb works because they're very, very detail-oriented. When you go on Airbnb, everything works. They monitor quality. They make sure that there's very little uh, support needs. They, they really make sure that the user experience, the UX as we call it, is seamless so that people have very, very high satisfaction rates. You know what, what was the biggest barrier for Airbnb mm. at the beginning? It was the photos. Mm. Interesting. It was the photos because people... Oh, just they had to go to New York and take the photos themselves. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. They took photos by themselves because people didn't really know how to promote themselves and the photos weren't attractive enough for people to order or to book in the places. So it's very interesting to think of what is going to be your photos. But I want to make some short break and ask you, how did it all start? Tell me a bit about your career. I want you first to tell me a bit about you and how did you start in the software industry, if I'm getting you right, and uh, came along to the water industry. Let me start a little bit about, about my background. I was raised as one of six boys. My father was an international businessman, so we were everywhere. We oh. lived in you know, Canada and the Caribbean and many years in Europe. So we always had a very good, I, I would say, non-American viewpoint. You know what you know, the, uh, the joke is, uh, 
There's trilingual, there's bilingual, and there's American. Right? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so um, so it, it, it gave me a viewpoint. And after all those years being a little French boy, I was sent to America for my final schooling in high school. Mm-hmm. And after high school, I was supposed to go to all kinds of colleges, etc. I chose instead to get involved in the nonprofit space. And for years, I was paid almost nothing, but I really was in that save the world kind of mentality. Mm. And when you're young, you don't worry about the mortgage because you don't have one. (laughs) But in that process, I also became, uh, I had been a sailor and a a skier for many years. And and all of a sudden I became um, a professional merchant marine officer through that process. I I had adventures in the South Pacific as a captain and all kinds of fun stuff Mm. before finally deciding in the eighties that I wanted to get involved with technology because I felt that technology had the really the only way to break out of the way things are, the fossil mm-hmm. fuel world, the, the minimum sanitation world, all these minimum, minimum situations, these sort of almost almost right but not right kind of problems that we have, technology would, would leapfrog, would jump over these issues. And so I ended up in New York uh, doing some pioneer computing work. Um, fast forward to the early 90s, I was on the West Coast, got involved with the dot-com and uh, experienced an amazing, amazing time for about 10 years, including the dot-com crash and mm. all of that, and really learning so much about disruptive marketing, be learning something that I call mistake-based marketing, meaning that you go in there and you learn by mistakes mm. as a strategy, not as a mistake. And out of that, I finally gained enough experience that a fund invited me to become a CEO. But they said, um, it's not going to be tech. We're doing this new thing called algae. We think that algae can be the next fuel because it was the original fuel. It was the original oil. And so in 2007, I launched with their backing a company called Origin Oil, the original oil, which was really trying to help grow an algae for fuels business. And it was such an exciting thing that I was on every TV show. It was wonderful. And unfortunately, the oil industry came up with fracking and cost of oil dropped to the point where algae became only a science experiment. And so I could not run a company with this algae concept. And we would have normally just shut down the company. But our technology proved to be portable to water treatment because we had a, an electrostimulation, a way to pull the algae out of the water using electrostimulation. And we managed to convert that to use it to pull um, solids out of wastewater using electrostimulation. And all of a sudden, we were in the water industry. And that's when I found out that the water industry, first of all, it's very boring for people. They, everybody mm-hmm. says water is important, but they don't want to know the details. Mm-hmm. Please don't tell me how you're how you're treating sewage. Not interested. I've had people say, "What's the problem, uh, Riggs? <laughs> I flush my toilet and everything goes away." Mm-hmm. And um, and I can tell them, "Well, yes, but infrastructure is falling apart. Has been falling apart since 1960. But you don't see it because it's hitting businesses and industry and agriculture, not the consumer. So it's a big problem for consumer um, marketing and." The second thing that I learned was that the water industry is very slow to change, very slow to adopt, that there is a mentality that almost you could say a complacency. I would say, really, because these are my friends, I would say it's more that they are concerned about 
doing things right. But the truth is, is that only one-fifth of sewage is treated yeah. in the world. Only one-third of industrial waste is treated in the world. Yeah. So most of the toxins are not being treated, and yet it's a trillion-dollar industry. So it tells you that this should be at least a three or four trillion-dollar industry, and it's that difference is very important. And I will, Hayuta, will tell you why. Yeah. 1918 saw 50 million people die from the Spanish flu, right? Yeah. Now everybody knows about it. Okay. 1918, there was a flu virus that came out of, it was incubated in the trenches of World War I, where very unsanitary. And then when the soldiers came home, it was exported to every part of the world. And by the way, it was not a Spanish flu. It was a Chinese flu. But really? China, I didn't know Spain, that. Spain got blamed. China was the source of the Black Plague in the Dark Ages. They've been, China has been, a, a, for reasons I won't get into, has been a problem. Um, and uh, there's some good folklore about the Black Plague, but I won't get into that. This is the Spanish one, but you say it's not Spanish, it's Chinese. Yeah, because the reason why is that Spain in 1918 was one of the very few democracies, and so they had an mm. open press. And so the news came out of Spain. It was suppressed everywhere else. <laughs> uh, so it was called the Spanish flu. Beautiful story. Okay. Anyway, um, the, the fact is, is that in 1918, we had a flu epidemic that killed 50 million people in the world. Now, we're going to see, I don't know, it's a funny story. But yeah. why did we have 50 million die then? And maybe the coronavirus, it's bad, but it probably will not kill more than a million people worldwide. Right? right? What is the difference? And the only difference is sanitation. That's it. Mm, sure. So, if sanitation... I think it's sanitation and the ability to know about that and to take the needed steps. Sure, but even in 1918, if you, if you Google the pictures from 1918, people were wearing masks, they were doing social distancing, and they were doing contact tracing, and they were doing lockdown. They were doing all those things. Okay. And... Um, The, the only thing that might be different is vaccines, but we don't have a coronavirus vaccine. No, I think one of the things that was different is that it used to take much longer for the news to come out. That's also true. So until people knew about that, they were probably being affected already. So you're absolutely right about propagation. But remember, by the same token, in 1918, the virus propagated much slower. There were very few airplanes, um, not at all, really. Mm -hmm. Whereas <laughs> right. um, here in Los Angeles, I was, as I was telling you before the, uh, the podcast, we think we had the, the coronavirus in December and January because it is such a heavy Chinese inflow. It's one of the major ports of entry for the Chinese who came in very large numbers already infected. So the propagation was in weeks, not months. So hmm. yes, you're right. That information flowed slower, but so did people. So as we start to wind down from this coronavirus thing, Policymakers are worried about this very important thing. What about the second and third waves of the same? Are we going to have the same lockdowns? Because we will probably survive economically this mess, but we can't keep having these lockdowns. This is very, very bad. So we need to start thinking about long-term solutions, but make them happen fast. And so that's where we need to accelerate. And that's why we need to move from this you know, minority of wastewater treatment in the world to a majority as fast as we can, because this is not the end of these pandemics. This is really only the beginning. And while we can 
dramatically reduce the problem by having good hygienic habits, I would argue that hygienic habits, there's really two main pillars for preventing the virus. One is sanitary water treatment, but also behavior like social distancing, et cetera, washing your hands. That's all sanitary. And the other side is immunity, hmm, either sure. through natural immunity or through vaccines. So those are the two big things we can do. Well, immunity is already happening and a vaccine will, will come one of these days. Fine. That's not my job. Hmm. Um, but on the sanitation side, we can make a difference. And so that marketplace for water projects becomes one of our global priorities in the decade to come. And that's what's so exciting. Wow. And I want to ask you, when did you become an entrepreneur? And what would be your best advice to any entrepreneur that listens to us? Well, I think that um, when I first started really practicing being an entrepreneur was, <laughs> I was in Los Angeles. This was still in the 70s. And I was on a, on a break from my nonprofit work that never paid. And I needed to make some money. <laughs> and so I went to a meat wholesaler. Okay. Loaded up my car, my Volvo station wagon with frozen meat and drove down to South Central Los Angeles to the slums and started selling meat door to door. And I was amazed to find out that people were interested. I, was, I did something completely suicidal because, you know, they could have stolen my meat. They could, anything could have happened. But what I found was that the people in Watts and so forth mm. were actually lovely people <laughs> and that they were very welcoming. And I tried, here's what's funny. I tried to do the same thing in Hollywood and not one white person <laughs> would open it. Like, nope, go away. So I learned that you never know where things are going to work out. I, things went fine until my wholesaler started giving me uh, meat that was, oh. um, and that was cow and therefore too tough. And overnight I lost that business. But what I learned from that, and that's the second lesson. The first lesson was that markets are pretty easy to get going. The real problem occurs when you start to try and get maturity and then you run into issues like uh, people having very poor, being untrustworthy. Hmm. And uh, also when you bring on employees, they, they tend to sometimes think more about themselves than the company. These are all problems that, that I, I think you're going to have to solve once you're in the soup. But getting in the soup is really pretty simple. You can get going with anything very easily. And for example, when I finally got into the computer industry, I sold my first computer where I did not even know where the on switch was. <laughs> All I knew was the computer was a good thing. And I, I told this lady, my first client, I said, I can get you a great computer. It's this thing called the IBM personal computer. This was 1982. And let's go check it out. <laughs> we went to a store together and we played around until I found the on switch. And I sold her that computer, right? Yeah. So you don't need to be familiar with the space. You, don't need, you just need to have a spirit of adventure um, because it's going to be easier to jump into than you think. Okay. Um, the challenge is definitely going to be the continuing of that business, how to turn it into a profitable and ongoing stable business. And that's really the hardest task there is, how to get past the uh, typically uh, most businesses fail within 18 months. Getting past that is the big challenge. And I would say probably the best thing you can do is to see if you can get people to help you who know a lot about the business. And you'll be very lucky if you can get one of those people to help you. 
Well, what I'm saying is, first of all, you got to jump in the pool and um, don't hesitate because that experience will teach you so much. The second thing is quickly look. Once you're in the pool, okay, there's people floating around in that pool already who know stuff. And I, I can look back on my time um, when I was struggling to start a business in Manhattan in the 80s. And I had opportunities that uh, people were willing, were offering help. And I didn't really take advantage because I, I, I underestimated the amount of help that I would need. So it's important to take the help that will show up and realize you're not alone. So again, don't hesitate, just go. Hmm. And then while you're in it, quickly, quickly, quickly find the help, the knowledge, the mentors, the, the supporters, the colleagues, et cetera, that you can connect with and do things um, and you will survive. And that's been the, probably the most important lesson for me. Wow, I like this. You've got successes and we would like to hear about them in a minute. But I would like to ask you to share with us what is your biggest, most critical failure with customers or as a business owner, the one that affected your entrepreneurial journey the most or almost the most? I would say that, that it was that first learning experience of the 80s where I had a computer company. And um, what I didn't realize back then was that the computer industry has very long-term life cycles, meaning that if as a computer systems house, I acquire a business as a customer, I will still have that customer 20 years later if I do a good job. It's wow. it's a long-term thing. And what I was faced with at the time was I was a pioneer converting these businesses from paper ledgers to computer systems, which was extraordinarily hard and I could not find profitability. So I ended up giving the business to my best salesman and this young man became a millionaire from just continuing hmm. the business that I had begun because he had these long tails hmm. and that's where the money is made is on the, in a relationship. So that was a critical misestimation that I had. And first of all, I now know having done what I've done for the last decade with this business yeah. is there's no real reason for failure. You can persist. Failure is only a failure to persist, right? <laughs> I can think of a dozen ways I could have kept on going during that time. But instead, I threw in the hat, gave the business to my friend, the salesman, and continued from there. I went into a different phase of learning how different industries work. So I I spent a year working in film. I spent uh, some time doing direct marketing. As I even spent some time when I turned 40, I felt the need to be, to be a ski bum. So I mm -hmm. went through all of these uh, micro experiences to kind of get more kind of a reset because it had been a very tough experience and it had shaken my confidence in myself. Mm -hmm. And so from that, I um, eventually arrived uh, in Los Angeles, back in Los Angeles after so many years because the computer industry had been in New York and was immediately collided with the software industry and had a win. And hmm. by 1995, I'd had a very strong product success. I had learned some wonderful things. And that's when I really fell in love with computing in a way that I that had only been just dire survival in the 80s became hmm. enjoyable in the 90s. And, and then I started getting some liquidity events and selling companies. And there's nothing better 
for your morale than making some money from selling a company, right? So that was really good. So then, so long story short, I started really to feel like I was as good as I had thought I had been a decade hmm. And that's, as I say, when things got fun. Hmm. I think what you are saying here is extremely important to entrepreneurs. So I want to make sure I got the lesson you want to teach is that if you would have just keep going or finding ways or know what you know today about persistent or about failures, you could win with this company as well. And it would have been 25 years earlier. Yes. <laughs> and now I would like to ask you to share with us the story of the greatest, most significant success, a specific story. about one of your successes as a result of the right business approach or customer focus, something that you did right as an entrepreneur? That's a really good question. This company, Origin Clear, has been in business for a long time and there's been many times that, and every entrepreneur will, will know what I'm talking about, there's many times that it's been all the way down to credit cards. <laughs> oh my God. And... Um, You know doing all kinds of things to survive including you know lending money to the company I mean you, you you name it I've done it out of that came a realization over the last really um, 24 months that it is possible for us to effectively survive and grow through get funding that we know how to get funding now when I start talking to you about we're doing the Airbnb for water and That's yeah. only the latest concept. It's important. It's very, very important. But it's not about the concept. It's really about the relationships. And I feel that I have a very strong communal relationship with our investors because I've made very sure that they, even the early ones, normally the early investors are in terrible trouble. I've made sure that everyone who, who wanted to was um, made you know, um, whole, as we say. And I'm not. As a result, we have a very strong relationship, and I count many, many friends among them. So I would say that my biggest success to date is now going to enable me to do what I think is going to be the most important thing I will do in my career, which is to promulgate a, a global funding marketplace for water projects. And that's what I think is why I'm so excited about this. So there we are. Hmm, wow. Very exciting. And very impressive. It's so great. You've done a few things in your life already, and yet you are so excited about it, and it's really fantastic to hear. Can you recommend the best, most effective technological or digital tool that's related to um, customer focus or to running a business as an entrepreneur? However, I'm not looking for the last shiniest tool in the endless list. I'm looking for something that really helps you to succeed and might help other entrepreneurs as well. Well, it's funny you don't you say don't talk about the latest because um, early on in the 90s, um, I adopted email as a, a weapon um, as not just a way to communicate, but as a weapon to execute on strategies. And to this day, for me, email continues to be extremely important. Um, There's all kinds of challenges mm-hmm. relating to it. I, I'm not going to say it's a perfect tool because of deliverability issues, et cetera. But both in terms of managing 
the business and keeping the momentum going and making sure that people do what I want and communicating, sharing information. Um, and it's also a wonderful tool in the sense that unlike the telephone, it's asynchronous. You don't have to answer it right away, right? So I can work at midnight, write hmm. some emails, and it doesn't matter that somebody's asleep, they'll see it in the morning. Well, this is very important because it means that people can manage their own priorities. So I think that email remains something, and I spend a great deal of energy making sure that the email is almost like a short story, meaning that it communicates very concisely, yet with impact, Hmm. What I'm trying to do, whether I'm talking to an investor to get into invest or talking to one of my uh, managers to get them to adopt some new practice, it's got to be pointed and it's got to result in a, a compliance, a, the desired effect. Email to me is something that you can't do too well. It's, it's a, such a powerful tool. And hmm. I think to this day, it is probably the biggest reason why I do well. Wow, I love that so much, and I agree. There are many factors that affect one's success. However, I believe that for each of us, there is one factor that really impacts their ability to succeed and helps them to thrive. And I want to ask you, what is your one key success factor? You know... It really relates to something that I know that, that is um, coming in this interview, which is really the love for physical challenge and danger. I, I was a sailor for many years. I love sailing to, to this day. I'm a big skier. Um, I like going down very, very steep slopes. I've had my fun climbing hmm. tall mountains. And I think it's important to engage in physical, somewhat you know, controlled danger. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not suicidal, but controlled danger is something <laughs> that I think gives you a certain, uh, elan, you know, a certain, um, drive that, you know, we'll, we'll take the, we'll take a bunch of people up to the mountains. And, uh, of course I take, we, we were, my wife is, um, has, um, a small uh, tutoring business. So I take her, her kids hmm. up and I'm the one who goes, Hey, let's go in the trees. <laughs> so um, I'm the one who, and they love it. Of course, I make sure it's very important <laughs> that you don't give them a bad experience from the beginning, right? So you, you get them involved. Sure. And uh, pretty soon they're like, um, you, go, you want to go to the trees? Yeah, let's go to the trees. And so this, <laughs> this, we don't have enough adventure in this modern world. Right. There's adventure, but it's not obvious, right? So if you can engage in some obvious physical adventure, then it invigorates you for the less obvious, but just as dangerous business and family challenges that are out there, right? <laughs> right. I love that. My last question, before asking you what is the best way to connect with you, my last question is my mountain question. And as my listeners already know, I always imagine this journey of marketing, building the awareness, know, like, and trust, and then building brands in the mind of our customers. And marketing is all about our customers, seeing things from the customer's point of view. So I always imagine it as climbing a mountain. 
and at some point I started to ask my guests, and that's what I'm asking you, whether you ever climbed a mountain or wished to climb a mountain, or do you have any relationships with mountains at all? And you already gave us a clue about that, so I'm really curious to hear that. It's interesting because in, I've never been a mountain climber. I, I've used mountains to slide down, but mm-hmm. generally with a lift to take you up. But in 2013, a friend of mine invited me to climb with his family in uh, near Chamonix, where they have the Mont Blanc. Yeah, I've been there. And we climbed one of the, one of the peaks, and we did it over a period of two days. We stayed in a refuge at the top, wow. and it was quite an adventure. But I have to tell you that it's a very slow process. You <laughs> very slowly, right? Right. And I... I think that I get a bit impatient about that stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's good to do, but well, here's what I did not enjoy was that we climbed all the way up the mountain. Fine. I'm, I'm good with that. But then we had to climb down and I saw this beautiful glacier and I said, why can't I ski down? (laughs) So we had to one step at a time and walking down a mountain is in some ways harder than climbing up. And so I really realized that for me, I will happily climb a mountain if I can go down fast, and that's okay. <laughs> and yeah, it's original. Riggs, I would like you to share with us what is the best way to connect with you for any one of our listeners that would like to be in touch. Well, go to originclear.com, and when you do so, there will be an invitation to get on my list, which you should do. Because every week I do a live briefing, um, it's about 35, 40 minutes on Zoom, that um, brings people up to date on what's happening. I also have a newsletter. And if you receive my newsletter and you hit reply, it will go into my inbox. So even though that newsletter goes to 25,000 people, I believe very strongly in people being able to reply to me directly. If I'm getting into their inbox, then the only polite thing is to allow them to get, get into mine, right? So <laughs> that's a great way to connect. Of course, they should go on Facebook and search for Origin Clear and become part of that group because, of course, we post so much there. Uh, LinkedIn, in general, Origin Clear is pretty well represented in social media. But the important thing is just start listening to my briefings. Um, I think you'll enjoy them. We try to be as open as we can. Even though we are a public company and we are limited what we can say, we try to, to stretch Stretch the limit and tell you everything that's going on. And I believe that what we're doing today is amazingly exciting. And we would love to have people participate in any way uh, in the adventure. Hmm. Riggs, I would like to thank you so much. It has been an original interview and a very original subject because talking about the water industry and this global challenge that we are all facing, but uh, very easily forget about is unique. And I want to thank you for that. I enjoyed this conversation very much. <laughs> thank you so much. So take care. Keep doing the very important and beautiful things that you are doing. And uh, let's keep in touch. It was my great pleasure. And to all your, your listeners, thank you. Bye-bye. 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 And for you, our listeners, until the next time, 
it all goes down to this. You either reach or miss. Keep reaching your goals and vision. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Reach or Miss Show, the podcast for the customer-focused entrepreneur. You can find all the information, links, and resources that was mentioned at the show in our website, reachormiss.com. See you next week.